0: On Sunday morning the 11th, we uh, had a message that addressed the issue of women in leadership. The recording of that did not turn out well in terms of the audio, so we are going to redo that message just in the studio here so that people can listen and hear a little more clearly what we were trying to communicate. So we had started a conversation about women's involvement in leadership at Waterstone. Now historically, Waterstone has always worked at unleashing women to use their gifts and to be effective in ministry. We've had women lead ministries, we've had them lead Sunday schools of all kinds, both with men and women in them. We have them lead small groups. If you've been around here much, you know we have women preach. We haven't shied away from calling women pastors because we believe that's uh, one of the functions they do and are gifted to do that. We've had women on our management team when we had a management team, and now we have women on our executive team, which is a smaller group made up of Brad, myself, Danielle, Larry, and Billy. But. Our Constitution does not allow women to serve on our elder board. So the elders have put forth a recommendation that we amend our Constitution to allow women to serve as elders at Waterstone. We're gonna ask the congregation to vote on that recommendation on October 8th and 9th. And for that uh, recommendation to pass, we have to have a 75% affirmative vote. This has been, Actually, quite a long process as the elders have wrestled with this, we put together a task force. There's been a lot of prayer and study and hard work that has gone into this recommendation. We actually put out a white paper that we entitled Inclusive Leadership. The word inclusive on that paper is only referring to the issue of women on our elder board. Um, And if you have not got that, you want to grab that paper and look at it. We've scheduled a number of town halls to have an open conversation. And uh, next week, this following Sunday, we're going to have the second part of this two-part message addressing, again, the issue of women in ministry. Now, it's important to notice what we're not talking about uh, uh, in this recommendation. We're not talking about the role of senior pastor. Our constitution limits that position to males. Nor are we talking about uh, roles in the home or the roles in marriage, husband and wife. If you want to know how we think about those things, you can go back uh, a number of years. In 2015, we did a series called Modern Family, and on February 15th, we addressed that issue as we looked at Ephesians chapter five, so you can Uh, Listen to that message to understand how we think about those issues. And it's also important to note that this does not change our position on how we view marriage. We have always seen marriage as uh, between a man and a woman. We believe that's biblical and founded uh, deeply in scripture. And that's not going to change. And we are not changing our view on sexuality, uh, particularly on homosexuality. If you're not married, uh, uh, you're called to be chaste, and that doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman, or, or if you have a gay orientation, the ethic is still the same. Uh, sex is to be reserved for a marital relationship between a man and a woman. And really, the issue of women in ministry or becoming elders and homosexuality, I know some people sometimes think they're linked. Uh, they're really not comparable issues. But. We know that this is one of those disputable matters. And that at times it can be a polarizing issue and that there are incredibly different and varying views on this issue. So I wanted to start by talking about Ephesians chapter four to help us frame the conversation. Ephesians four reads this way. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received be completely humble and gentle be patient bearing with one another in love make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace there's one body one spirit just as you were called in one hope when you were called one lord one faith one baptism one god and father of all who is over all and through all and in all That passage is telling us that we are spiritually connected. We are sons and daughters of the same father. In a lot of ways, the church is called to be a family. And if we're a family, one of the things you know is that in healthy families, there's not always agreement. Uh, Sometimes there's disagreement, and when there's disagreement in a healthy family, it brings about conversation. And in those conversations, people hear each other out and they're not afraid to talk about hard things. They work them out towards a common solution. And what matters in healthy families is the quality of conversation. I like the words that Paul uses here, humility and gentleness and love. We want those kind of things to characterize our conversation as we move through this issue. So in the next few weeks, we wanna have some healthy conversations. But it's important to note that that the goal is always the same, and that is unity. A focus on a common purpose and the common relationship we have with each other because of our common relationship with Jesus. Now unity doesn't mean uniformity. Unity happens because we have a, a common focus on the same things, as the text puts it. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. The truth is, we have far more in common that is important and valuable than what we have in terms of our differences. And in a healthy family, you do not quit because there's a difference in opinion or conviction. Around Waterstone, we have often talked about this in terms of agreeing to disagree. What we mean by that is we have some core doctrine that we agree to agree on, and that core doctrine is identified in our doctrinal statement. And there are bottom line issues, like the that salvation is by grace, that God exists in a trinity, that the scriptures are authoritative. Those things we agree to agree on. But if something isn't mentioned in our documents, st- uh, doctrinal statement, then we give people the freedom to have their own convictions. And be quite honest, this issue around women in ministry is not part of our doctrinal statement, it's just uh, a secondary issue, but we have to talk about it because as a church, we have to operate, so we have to decide how we're going to operate. But it's not a primary consideration on which we base fellowship. In other words, we can agree to disagree on the issue of women elders and still maintain the unity of the body. I think it's good to listen to the remarks of a pastor of a church, Park Street Church, back in Boston, who went through this issue a number of years ago. And I like what he wrote about this. I think it has wisdom. He said this, it is my conviction that there is no excuse for Christians to disfellowship one another, to become embittered against each other, or to separate over the issue of gender roles. May the Lord help us always to major in the majors. That was by Gordon Hugenberger, Park Street Church in Boston. So no matter what you believe on this issue, or how passionate you are on this issue, or whatever way this issue goes in the vote, We wanna retain our oneness in Christ. Now, it might be helpful to begin by talking about the two positions, or, or at least the two extreme positions, because there's all kinds of variations in between that go into this whole debate around women in ministry. They are both labeled. I don't particularly like the labels, but I'm going to use them for a moment to help us understand the differences just a bit. On one side is the complementarian position. Uh, This says that men and women are created equal in value, but in calling, the Bible excludes women from certain ministry positions and roles within the church. Women should not teach men, should not preach, should not be in leadership over men, should not teach the Bible or theology in seminary. Now, on the other side, the other end of the spectrum, you have the egalitarian position. And this says that men and women are created equal in value and in calling. And thus, women are free to use their gifts wherever they would like to within the church for any role or position for which they are called and qualified. There are no restrictions on their role, they can teach and preach and be in any leadership position in the church. They can teach theology and the Bible in seminary and in all kinds of schools. Now what's interesting is there's various positions in between those two ends of the spectrum. Now two things I want you to know. One, there are really good and smart people on both sides of this debate. People who are much smarter than me. They are godly, intelligent, scholarly, uh, people on both sides of the debate that I greatly admire. And the second thing you need to note is I have a position in this debate. You may not agree with everything I say or necessarily end up where I end up as we talk about it. And I want you to know that's okay. Uh, I just want to encourage you to listen and to think and hear me through. I want us to be like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17 who, who are noble in the fact that they listen and then wrestle and, and take things to the scripture to decide what is true. Now, there are things that both positions agree on, and maybe that's a good place to start. First, both sides agree that the Bible is authoritative. Authoritative. Uh, both believe the Bible and are committed to being faithful to what it teaches. This is a disagreement about interpretation. This is not a disagreement about biblical authority. Nobody is throwing the scriptures out, and it is unfair and not accurate to say that either side is unbiblical. Uh, neither side is disregarding the scriptures. And, and to say that they are is really kind of being judgmental. They are simply disagreeing on how those scriptures are to be interpreted and applied. Second thing both sides agree on, and that is men and women are equal. In terms of their intrinsic value, both see men and women created in the image of God and therefore intrinsically valuable in his sight. Third, both sides believe that men and women are distinct and complementary. Uh, and, and thus there's an interdependent. It's interesting that both sides are, are fulfilling the words of the other side. In other words, both are complementarian and both are egalitarian. Both sides believe that women are are equal in value, and both sides believe that men and women have complementary roles and are distinct, distinct and that we need both in men, women and men to accomplish what God wants us to accomplish in the world. And that's the third thing we agree on, the fourth thing we agree on. The church needs both men and women to exercise their giftedness. There are no gender restrictions on the Holy Spirit's gifting. Now, I also want you to know that, uh, over time, my position on this issue has shifted a bit. Early on, when we wrestled through this issue uh, 30 years ago, we had to decide whether we were gonna put women on the elder board or not. Um, We couldn't reach a consensus on that issue, so we decided not to do it, not to have women on our elder board. I wasn't convinced that we shouldn't, nor was I convinced that we should, but I was, at that moment, pretty okay not having them on the elder board because I wasn't convinced that it was going to hinder the advance of the gospel. And it's important for you to know that both now and then, the Bible was key to my position and my thinking. I really believed that restricting women from certain leadership positions could be defended biblically. But over the years, I've continued to to read and and to discuss and and wrestle. And I I would think at a time that I had this all figured out and and, uh, was handling everything correctly and this was the right position, then I'd do more reading and more thinking and more listening and more wrestling. And over time, I've grown more uncomfortable with not having women involved on our elders. And more and more uncomfortable with the position that restricts puts restrictions on their calling. In fact, wrestling through it this last year has made me rethink my position and understand even more, and made me shift my thinking. And the main reason my thinking has shifted is my understanding of the Bible has deepened. And part of what has pushed me this way is just a number of inconsistencies that that have begun to trouble me more and more about not having women included in all aspects of ministry. Let me give you a number of them. One, some of the best Bible teachers and Bible scholars I know are women. I listen to them speak and I read their articles and their books and and quite honestly, God uses them uh, in my life. They have great wisdom and great maturity and they're godly women. And and, uh, when that happens, I think to myself, why wouldn't I want these women on our elder board? They'd be phenomenal. I mean, why wouldn't any church want them to teach or preach? It's just not true that men would not learn and be challenged or profit by what they had to say, by their wisdom and their input. Second, if women are so easily deceived, as some people teach based on 1 Timothy, why in the world, then, if they're easily deceived, would we let them teach those who are easily deceived and the most vulnerable, in other words, women and kids? If these women are so easily deceived, it would seem to me the last people we want to give them exposure to is those who are at the most formidable moment in their development, kids. It seems that if they were easily deceived, we'd want them to teach men because the men know better and can filter what they're teaching. Third inconsistency. Why is it that on the mission field women can lead and teach and plant churches and historically have done so and done a phenomenal job? I mean, Dennis Vogan, who works for World Venture, told me that for the first number of years, all the pastors in, in Taiwan were women. They they were kind of the foundation of the church there and they did an incredible job. Now, why can women do that in those churches, but can't do that here in our churches in the States? I mean, in some ways, that just smacks of racism. I mean, what are we saying about Asian and Latin American men if women can lead and teach them, but not us here in the States? A fourth inconsistency is my experience in seminary, and then in ministry. For a number of years, I taught preaching at Denver Seminary as an adjunct professor. And quite honestly, one of the things I realized in teaching preaching that oftentimes, the best preachers in the class weren't the guys, but were the women. I mean, some of the best preachers we trained at the seminary were were people who I know when they got out would be restricted in the ability to use their gift. And it made me wonder, why would God give them such an amazing gift, and then deprive them and the church of the opportunity to use it? Fifth, my experience consulting churches Every once in a while, I have that opportunity. And as I have done that, on occasion, I come across a church where you discover that the person really making an impact in that church, making things happen, making ministry occur, is a woman who's working behind the scenes. I mean, she runs the place. She makes great decisions. She has great insight. She has great talents and gifts. And she's making it happen. But because she's a woman, she's restricted from being on that board of elders or on that leadership team. And oftentimes, I look at that woman and I realize that she is far more gifted and far more talented and far more godly than any of the other guys on any of the guys on the board, or sometimes even more than the pastor himself. It just seems odd to me. And then, the sixth inconsistency is oftentimes I'll get involved in an organization outside the church. And when I'm there, I'll discover that women are operating at the highest level in that organization and they are doing a phenomenal job, doing great stuff. And working with them is great. And I think to myself, wait a second, they can't do this in some churches. And then I wonder, does it really make sense that a group of men are the ones who are making all the decision and providing spiritual leadership to a congregation that is over half women? and have to do it without direct input from them? Finally, the, the last inconsistency, and maybe this is one that bugs me most, is that I'm a father of four girls. And I look at them, and they are all gifted in, in, in amazing ways, I know, I'm biased, but I think in some ways they're all hitters. And, and some days, some of them maybe will be ready to lead and even speak. And do I really want to tell them, you know, you can be all that God wants you to be and there is no ceiling and you can climb the ladder as long as you do it out there. But you can't do it in here in my world, in the church. It just doesn't seem right. So all those things have bothered me. And I've begun to shift. Now, the reason I've shifted has more to do with my understanding of scripture. In fact, what I want to do is to share with you three things that that have helped me think of this issue differently. Uh, Two of them have to do directly with my understanding of the Bible, and then one of them has to do with history. Uh, The first one is simply the big story of the scriptures, and I want to talk about this now, and then in the next message in this series, I'm going to look at some key Bible passages that, that I've rethought, and then lastly, talk about the historical perspective. But let's talk about the big picture of scripture for a moment. In Genesis chapter one and two, we, we discover that uh, God created men and women equally, and gave them a responsibility to rule his world, to be co-rulers. Genesis 1.27 says this, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then the first thing you discover in that passage is that both men and women are created in in, in the image of God, so they are equal. In fact, I think for us to understand the image of God, we need both men and women, so we get the full nature of who God is. So the fact that they're in God's image makes them intrinsically, both man and woman, valuable. But what is also interesting to note is that both are given the responsibility to rule. They are co-regents with God. And to be quite honest, there doesn't seem to be much of any hierarchy in the garden. If there is some there, it's incredibly subtle. But that all changes in Genesis chapter 3. Because in Genesis chapter 3, we learn that there's a curse to be corrected. You remember the story of Adam and Eve fall short of the assignment they are given, fall short of the mission that they're supposed to achieve. Both Adam and Eve sin, and as a result of that, they both fall victim to the curse. And one of the things the curse does is it spoils the relationship between the man and the woman, and the consequences are severe. The relationship between them seems that now, after their sin, it it is characterized by a domineering and a desiring, a a kind of rivalry. In fact, that word used uh, of the woman that her desire will be for her husband, that same word is used in chapter four, Genesis chapter four, when it talks about sin desiring to dominate Cain. So under the curse, there is this conflict and tension where where the man is ruling over the woman, but the woman is desiring or dominating, trying to dominate the man. And the important thing to see is that the curse is now a problem to be corrected. The mutuality and the equality gets twisted and distorted. And the rest of the Bible story is how that curse gets fixed. It's the story of restoration and women play a significant part in that restoration. In the Old Testament, one of the first ladies we meet is a gal named Miriam. She's a prophetess who helps Moses lead Israel out of Egypt and helps him lead them into the promised land. And then there's Deborah, she's she's a judge in, in chapter four and she rules over Israel. In fact, uh, there's a particular palm that she sits under, and the people of Israel bring their disputes to her so that she can solve them. She's the one with the discernment and authority. She's the judge. And then later on, she leads Israel in this great military victory. And then we meet a woman named Huldah in 2 Kings chapter 22. And this is interesting, Josiah finds a copy of the book of the law, and they're trying to understand how it applies to them and what it means. So what Josiah does is he takes his, his senior priest along with some other leaders around him, and they go to Huldah to figure out what the meaning of the scriptures are for them. In other words, she's interpreting the Bible, the scriptures for them. Now, here's the key question. If leadership over men by a woman was a violation of God's will, then why would he anoint and honor these women to do that? Well, then you get to Jesus, and you quickly discover that Jesus affirmed and taught and empowered women. I think sometimes we miss how radical Jesus was in relationship to the women in his days. I mean, in in his day, women were seen as property. They weren't uh, uh, worthy of educating. They, They had a lower status. They weren't seen as equal to men, and definitely not equal to men in terms of their value. Yet, Jesus treats them as if they are. He teaches them, he wants them to be his disciples. He allows them to be in his inner circle. In fact, much of his ministry is supported by him. God makes them the witnesses of his resurrection. I, I mean, it's just radical how he treats women. Radically different than the culture and the world he's in. And then you see that continued in the book of Acts. When the spirit comes, it doesn't just fall and empower the men. It falls on both the men and women in Acts chapter two. And both men and women begin to to prophesy. And, And when that happens, Peter says, this is a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy from Joel chapter two. And argues that this is a sign that the kingdom is breaking through. The curse is beginning to be pushed back as both men and women become empowered by the spirit. And then you see that played out in the early church. You have Lydia who helped start, start, who helped start the new church in Philippi. You have Priscilla who in Acts 18 uh, teaches a man named Apollos. Apollos is a good Bible teacher, but he doesn't really understand all there is to understand about how Jesus provided the way of salvation. But Priscilla, a woman, explains it to him. And if you trace the name of Priscilla and Apollos through the book of Acts, you begin to understand that she is Typically listed first. And that means because the convention of the day, when someone is listed first, they have a leadership position in the relationship. Uh, Priscilla is the primary teacher when it comes to Priscilla and Apollos. And then you have Phoebe. Phoebe is identified as a deacon of the church in Romans chapter 6. And she's the one who delivers the letter of the Romans to the Roman church. And Paul says there that she has been a huge asset to his ministry and is encouraging the Romans to assist her in her ministry. And then you have Junia who is messi- messi- uh, mentioned in Romans chapter 16 verse seven. And there she is identified as an apostle in the church. A position that has authority. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul speaks about women and praying Women who are praying and prophesying in the church and does so in a positive way. Now understand, prophesying is simply speaking forth God's word. It's a statement that carries with it authority. The women are using their gifts and God is using them to further his kingdom. And then you get to Galatians chapter three, verse 28. There it says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile nor slave nor free, nor is there male and female for you are all one in Christ. Paul is talking about all the distinctions between Jew and Greek and slave and free and men and women being obliterated in Christ. You see, the kingdom is pushing back the curse. And then you get to Revelation. And in Revelation, at the end, you discover that there is no more curse. Revelation 22 verse three says no longer will there be any curse the throne of God and of the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads there will be no more night there will not need to be the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. See, when you go to scripture, there is a trajectory of God's redemptive purposes and redemptive plan pushing back the consequences of the fall, pushing back the curse. I think sometimes, too often, we in the church have treated women, and the way we have treated them has been more a reflection of the curse than it has been of the restoration. In God's kingdom, women are treated differently. In God's kingdom the rule and reign they rule and reign alongside the men they are treated as daughters of the God who is our father and king We're always talking about the big picture around waterstone God's vision from the beginning has always been of men and women sharing his image and ruling over all creation And if that is true, then his church should be a place where that is recognized, practiced, and celebrated. We are to be a new community that points people towards that new and better day. We are to be a preview of the coming kingdom. And if in that kingdom, and if on that day, women rule with men, should not they have that kind of authority now and position now? I know what you're thinking, but what about those passages that say they shouldn't? Well, I want you to listen to the next sermon, because in the next sermon, we're going to go after what uh, 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Timothy teach about the role of women, and wrestle with those passages to see if we're really understanding them correctly.